Well, that was fun. Thanks, guys. Good morning and welcome to our church, Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. Like Jess said before, if you are new especially, I want to welcome you uh, to our community. Thanks for coming today. Uh, We're in a sermon series right now on the Gospel of John. Uh, Peter was alluding to that uh, before that last song. So if you have a Bible and want to turn to John 6, feel free. This will all be on screen here, though, in a second. We're in John 6, 60 to 71 today, and today is part three of three of a mini-series of sorts we've been in for a few weeks now on the Bread of Life Discourse. So a little bit of context, uh, Jesus uh, has just got done feeding the 5,000 uh, with a little bit of bread and fish miraculously, and it's now turned into this longer discourse on Jesus identifying himself as the bread of life. So it's just one of these classic things Jesus does in taking something physical, maybe something he does like a miracle or something he sees or holds or is just there in the city, he, and he talks about it in terms as though he fulfills it. And so this is one of those places where he's saying, I'm feeding a few people with bread, but for everyone, I am the bread of life. And if you nourish yourselves on me, you will live forever. So um, one of the things he said, though, last week that kind of dialed up uh, the almost severity of this is he talked about his um, body in, in food-like terms. So he said, you, um, you need to eat my flesh. You need to drink my blood in order to be saved. So very like these very cannibalistic overtones uh, that the crowd is like, whoa, this is getting really weird. Like we th- thought we were with you and this is now getting problematic. And so um, that's where we left it off. And so it's with that very palatable and easy teaching that we continue today in uh, verse, verse 60. So let's read the first six verses to start and we'll kind of take this in three sections today. Uh, one of the big questions though Jesus asks right off the cuff here, is does this teaching offend you? Uh, Which is really interesting. I want to actually play off that a lot today. We'll start there and we'll uh, kind of trace that theme through a little bit um, the rest of chapter 6. That's kind of the main goal. But there's a lot we'll talk about. So uh, verse 60 though, let's start there. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. All right, so... I want to start with this question I alluded to and frame it this way, though. Where does offense come from? This is actually a very important biblical question to ask and answer. This is not just something unique to John 6. A lot of you might be aware of this. Um, Because people are offended by the gospel, whether it's a narrative like this or the book of Acts, or whether you see it kind of come out in some of the letters uh, as as readers. Um, Very important uh, here. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time in this, but the disciples in verse 60 are um, not the 12, his main 12 disciples. They're, um, they're from the broader crowd, so general followers. And uh, when they heard Jesus say, you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood in order to have life, which of course implies that if you don't do that, you don't have life. So you remain dead, you stay dead, uh, and you have a hell to earn uh, if you don't drink it. So when they hear all of that, they say, this is a hard teaching. And they're right. Check, right? But they also say, who can listen to it? Who can bear to listen to this? 
So notice they don't say, uh, who can understand it, though that might be in the subtext, it's kind of confusing, but they don't say that. Uh, they say, who can listen to this? Who can bear to sit here and listen to this man talk about himself and truth in these terms? Uh, another word we talked about last week that comes up here again, and Jesus senses this, is that they were grumbling about it. They were kind of gnashing their teeth a bit. Uh, they were stomping their feet in their mind when they heard Jesus say it. They, it doesn't say they were confused by it, uh, but rather they, they grumbled. They took offense. And so then Jesus asks, because he's sensing this, uh, does this offend you? Do you take offense at this? Uh, implying that it, of course, does. The, the crowds were offended at this teaching. And it's really important to read this carefully. Uh, and I think ask this question, another version of this question would be, why are they offended? Uh, what's behind the curtains of their offense? Uh, not just the teaching, but even further. Uh, is it simply because Jesus talked about himself as food? It's unlikely that they're offended at that because disgust would be the right response uh, if that were it. And there was probably disgust in the crowds uh, as well. All the non-cannibals among them were like gross, right? Uh, which is probably all of them. Um, but offense cuts deeper. Uh, it's more personal. Offense in this passage comes not from these types of um, uh, overtones, uh, food like eat my, eat my flesh and drink my blood overtones themselves, uh, but from what the teachings preclude. They're thinking, if this is true, that to have life, I need to eat Jesus' flesh and I need to drink his blood, and more than that, that it's only those the Father draws who are able to be saved. It's only those the Father draws who are able to come to Jesus to have this bread in the first place. Then I bring nothing to the table at all when it comes to salvation. If all that's true, then I bring absolutely nothing to the table at all when it comes to salvation. And that's offensive. The crowd knows it. Jesus knows it, and deep down, I think so do we, or at least we should. We should work towards that. Uh, it reminds me of a lot of places in the Bible. I mentioned how narrative uh, in the Bible, the, genre of na uh, the narrative genre kind of exemplifies this in, in unique ways. You see in the book of Acts actually quite a bit. It reminded me of uh, Stephen in Acts 7. If you guys know his story, he's the first Christian martyr uh, ever. He, he was stoned to death for preaching the gospel, and he died for a few reasons. This won't be comprehensive here today, but one of the reasons he died was actually in line with what Jesus is saying here. Uh, one of the reasons he died was his insistence that the works of our hands, the good works of our hands, matter zilch when it comes to salvation. He says, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Which is to say, God is not impressed with your temples or your piety. He dwells in things made by his hands. That is, the works of his son, the works of Jesus. He goes on to say a few verses later, right before he's stoned to death, he says, you are the ones, uh, preaching this to uh, hard-hearted uh, you know, Jewish listeners, uh, Stephen's a Jew as well, but he's, he's saying, you are the ones who received the law, the laws of God, the commandments, and did not keep it. That is, you bring nothing to the table except your sin. And upon hearing this, the angry mob threw heavy rocks at Stephen's head until he passed out and died. 
A similar thing happened to Paul in Ephesus. If you remember when he brought the gospel to that city and preached there, uh, it says that Paul made it clear that things made with our hands are no gods at all. And he was assaulted for it. He was physically assaulted for it. He didn't die, but he was physically assaulted in a mob, uh, not unlike Stephen. Um, he also actually preached in Athens a couple chapters before this and says something very similar. He says, God to the Athenians, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself is the one who gives. Human beings don't give to God. The Christian God is a God who draws close. He comes near. He gives entirely. And so, can you see a theme in how the early Christians talked about the gospel? And they never stopped, by the way. But the theme, of course, is that the Christian gospel, uh, the, the Christians were at pains when they preached to show how altogether separate grace was from human effort. How altogether separate God's grace was from human effort. They were at pains to show how biblical that theme was, how critical it was to embrace and to apply to our hearts by faith. Uh, this was not a side hustle theology. They weren't preaching the main thing over here. Then every once in a while, some Christians who kind of cared about this very minor sub-doctrinal idea sometimes talked about grace versus works as if it were some kind of theological hobby horse for a couple of people, maybe Paul especially. But instead, grace, the grace of God, the one-way love of God coming here to save us over and against us in every sense of that word was there at the very beginning, over and over and over again. If, if there were an Oscars in biblical theology, that theme would win Best Supporting Actor to Jesus himself. Jesus' version of this in John 6 is here in verse 63. He says, it's the Spirit, or God himself, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. All right, just, do you see what he's saying here? Uh, flesh cannot mean sin because in the Bible, spirit and sin are not opposites. It's common to read the word flesh uh, sometimes in the Bible and think of fleshly lusts or things like that. Uh, it can mean that, uh, but most of the time it actually doesn't uh, because spirit and sin are not direct opposites in, in the Bible, even though they are opposite in some senses of, of the word. But at least as much as uh, spirit and works are opposites. Uh, plus, saying like, sin is no help, uh, your, uh, your lust, the lusts of the flesh are no help to you, is not offensive. That's widely accepted. Well, of course the bad things that I do in life are no help to me. That wouldn't like make the crowd grumble or take offense at Jesus. But saying your good works are no help at all to workers and to good people is offensive. And best explains what's going on here uh, in context. Do you guys remember uh, Jesus' parable of the workers in the vineyard? Where Jesus teaches that this is what the kingdom of God is like. There are all these workers, and the ones that work eight hours a day, and the ones that work one hour a day, get the same pay at the end of the day. It's this, it's this extreme statement of unfairness. That the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, is unfair 
uh, to, to the way we understand it. And, and it actually is uh, not, not just like we think about it differently than God. He's just saying, if you think about the kingdom as though it's based on your performance, uh, Jesus, like Jesus says, you, you, then I have, I have something you need to hear. And it's this parable. That those who work eight hours and, and those who work one hour are equally saved. That they're equally blessed. They're equally given the Spirit. And so our work, Jesus says here that our works are no help when it comes to giving life. What we do, what we think, what we abstain from. They might be good things, but they're no help at all when it comes to salvation. For it's by grace we're saved. This is not of your own doing, the Bible says elsewhere. We don't share with God or barter with him or cooperate with him. The Spirit alone gives life. The Spirit alone gives saving faith. Jesus wants you to know that. He wants us to know that. Christian or not, if you're a Christian today, if you're not a Christian, it's the same thing. You're just coming at this from different angles or parts, parts in your faith journey. Uh, but wherever you're coming from, Jesus wants us to know that the Spirit gives life and the flesh, our works, are no help when it comes to, saving, to salvation. And that's not, if that's true, that's not exactly something you can move on from in life because this is not just about conversion. This is about all of life. This is about your day-to-day life as a believer. It's about sanctification. You don't graduate from this idea. If you think that, yeah, this is true before we're saved and we come to understand that in the moment of conversion, this is momentarily true, but then after that, we start to cooperate with God. After that, our flesh is helping God. What we do is helping him. It is turning his head. It, it, it is flattering God. Then if you believe that, you have departed from the teaching of the New Testament. You have departed from the teachings of Christ himself. Because there is no asterisk by this. There is no like temporal exclusion. This is not sort of true for one part of your life. This is true wholesale. This is true for you Christians and for non-Christians. This is true. That you can rest. You can rest easy. You can, as Peter said, sit down and receive from him because never at one point in your life does your flesh assist you in being saved or assist you in the task of eternal life. All right, so then in verse 65... Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. So um, he has other things to say here in reference to Judas. We'll talk about that here a little bit later. But this is also like he's saying, this is why I'm speaking in these terms. This is why it's so black and white that no one can, not one person can come to God unless the Spirit is acting. Uh, Judas, one of the 12, who is Jesus' betrayer, had no life in him, and yet he was a disciple. That's almost like, you think about that, that is another layer to this, right? Because we might be inclined to think, wow, the 12 disciples of all people, they're in, right? Uh, We don't know a lot about them, but they must be saved. They must have life, as Jesus understands it here. Or maybe we think they must be pretty great people. Maybe we think that about the disciples, So we don't know a lot about them, but we might think in those terms. But Jesus says to all of that, actually, no. You can't trust any of that. You can't trust status. You can't trust outward appearance, good grades, 
moral proficiency, job titles, promotions, W-2s, wealth, theological knowledge, humanitarianism, or anything like that whatsoever. Even the appearance of being close to God. You can't even trust that. Because Judas appeared to be close. He was one of the 12 disciples. You can't even trust the appearance of being close because that comes from us. It's only the work of God behind the curtains, doling out life to whom he will through Jesus. It's only God coming to us. It's only God calling into our tombs, saying, like that verse said a second ago, let there be light where there presently isn't any because in here is pitch black darkness. It's only God who speaks life into existence like he did in the very beginning, which again is why John is so second creation uh, themed in his gospel. It is to say, uh, like nothing could exist until God said exist. And if we are to understand ourselves as creatures, as we should, and if we are to understand the gospel as a second creation, then why do we think we can exist apart from God saying exist? See, nothing we do on our best days it's only the work of God. That This is why it's so offensive to them. He, Jesus is saying in many and various ways, and they're starting to get it. If all that's true, Jesus, then, then nothing I do has done one ounce of, 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 of something to get me closer to you. And Jesus is saying yes. And we need to hear this. Uh, the human heart, above all, has the propensity to trust in itself. Um, you may not think that. That's okay. Uh, it's, just, it's true, though, whether you believe it or not, that the human heart, above all, has the propensity to trust in itself. If, if you, in any way, submit to the biblical storyline, this is Adam and Eve's problem, wasn't it? In the very beginning, they, they thought highly of themselves. They, they, they trusted the leanings of their heart, which was not just to disobey God, but to eat of the one tree that they weren't supposed to, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was to follow the lie of the serpent, which was, you can be gods yourselves. It is, it is ultimately, there's many, there are many sins, but at the core is the propensity to self-deify and to trust in herself. And the whole story, the whole arc of the narrative is God entering into that and speaking into it. When God speaks into that, when he says the flesh is no help at all, he's correcting Genesis 3. He's correcting the fall. He's correcting the lie that Adam and Eve bought into. The law exemplified it and made us realize, come to terms with how we could not, could not keep God's commandments. And now Jesus here is saying, I'm saving you apart from them. Not through them, but apart from them. All right? Then it keeps going in John 6, 66 to 69. It says, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. All right, this is an amazing moment uh, here, not just in John 6. I'm talking all the Bible. This is an amazing moment here because of the contrast. We'll talk about some things. But the claims of Jesus, if you were to summarize this, uh, cause division. It's, sort of, it's pretty clear as day, right? Some people hear these teachings and they run, run away, never to come back, and others are saying, where else are we going to go? We believe in you. You're the Holy One of God. We don't have it all figured out, but 
we know a few things. And so, but this is the moment I've been hinting at for a few weeks now, that, uh, it, that it was this teaching in particular that led people to reject Christ. Um, it is the direct equivalent to someone leaving the church today or leaving the Christian faith outright. Uh, it happens all the time. Some of you may be considering leaving Jesus, uh, leaving the church, or you know someone who no longer consider, considers themselves a Christian. Uh, it is a, a sobering thing, to put it mildly, uh, to think about, and maybe even a bit scary. But it helps to remember what people ultimately leave Jesus over, uh, as per John 6. And this is not a comprehensive answer to that question. People leave Jesus for a variety of things, but look at what they're leaving him over here in this passage. They're essentially leaving Jesus over the gospel itself. They're leaving over the principle of grace. They're leaving over the centrality of Jesus, which is to say, uh, you know, someone might be saying, He's not centralizing my agenda in life. He's centralizing himself, and I don't like that. Uh, So they leave. Uh, They're leaving over the implication that those who don't eat of his flesh won't be saved, like I said before. So maybe they're leaving over the notion of hell, the uncomfortability of the existence of hell. And so they leave over teachings like that. Or they leave because Jesus won't fill their stomachs anymore. What about my other needs, Jesus? Or maybe the statement, I don't know if Christianity is working for me anymore. That's what the crowds are probably, at least some of the crowds are thinking. This isn't working for me. It worked yesterday when he filled my stomach, but I don't know. It's just not working for me. It's not satisfying me anymore. And so they leave. Or maybe it's just another teaching that's not palatable, like a biblical view of gender or marriage or sexuality. Um, many have said to Jesus about, uh, to the Bible, but to Jesus about those things, who can listen to this? Who can listen to this teaching? I can't bear it. And they, and they leave. In Mark 4, Jesus gives a parable called the parable of the sower. And in that parable, he talks about how um, the seed of the gospel, the seed of truth, is scattered like a, like a farmer scatters seed out to different soil types. And one of the soil types is described as this. He says, Still others, like seeds sown, sown among thorns, hear the word, But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke out the word, making it unfruitful. All right, so that phrase, especially the the desires for other things, uh, right, that can be, that's that's a very very comprehensive statement, can mean a lot of things. But the desires for other things, even good things, uh, Jesus is saying here, can choke out the seed of the gospel. The gospel is good, but we want other things too. And we believe Jesus should give us those things. And we believe Jesus should align with our other agendas of life, that he should affirm us and flatter us. But when he doesn't, what about when Jesus doesn't do those things? What happens then? Where do you go then? And that's what's interesting about the disciples, like the, the 12's response, or at least the 11's. I guess Judas isn't doing this in his heart. We know this because we're later in the story. Uh, but the, what, what the core disciples are saying that's different than the crowds is we don't have it all figured out, but where else are we going to go? Like, where are they going? I'm convinced at least there's nothing better over there. The grass isn't greener. But they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
So when you guys, um, when you guys see others reject Jesus, when you see Christians leave the faith, um, have you guys seen this these past couple of years? I, I've, I've seen this more than I have um, probably in my life in a condensed, you know, kind of a condensed way, but um, I've seen this all throughout my life. But when you see that, or when you come across a teaching that's difficult in the Bible or hard to accept, to quote Jesus here, when you suffer or when life gets hard for you as a Christian, maybe harder than before you were a Christian, when you're despondent or when the comforts of Egypt feel like they're outweighing the joys of salvation, uh, this is still the prayer. Where else are we really going to go? What does this world truly offer me? Is it really that much better? As David famously says in the Psalms, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day with Jesus than a thousand in the most beautiful, serene, and peaceful place on earth. For even in those places, without Jesus, there is death. Let's wrap it up here. Last two verses. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Great response, right? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. All right? Um, This is an interesting way to respond to the disciples' um, pretty strong affirmation of faith and trust here, isn't it? I mean, the disciples say all the right things. They check all the boxes, like you're the Holy One of God. They even use the word, we believe in you. Belief's a big deal for Christianity. Like, we believe in you. Where else are we going to go? We're committed. And Jesus says, yeah, one of you is a devil. So, you know, it's like, what? Like, he didn't say, uh, great answer, guys. Thank you, you know, and good night. He says, uh, one of you is a devil. Like, he's, he's, not, he's not being a killjoy in saying this. He, of course, he's making a point. Uh, actually, a, a couple big ones. He, he first starts with this one, which we've already seen a lot in John. I chose you all, you didn't choose me. Which, um, and let me just pause here and just say, uh, have you guys seen how important this idea is for Jesus? This is a really big deal, theologically. And not that we can ever totally figure this out, and you might think, man, that comes with a huge can of theological worms, though, because of what it means over here, what it implies. Totally get that. But look at how important it is for the Son of God to say to us, this, you, have to, you have to come to terms with this if you come to terms with the gospel. That you haven't really chosen God. If you think you have, you, you might feel like you have, and that's okay, but you really, it's not really you. This comes up so often that you could say it's uh, one of the things that Jesus actually uses to actually describe the core of the gospel. That God comes to us. This is how John started, right? That the word became flesh. Not the flesh or us became God's. See, Christianity says God became like you to save you. It doesn't say, like other religions, um, become like God's. Ascend. Get better. Self-actualize. But Christianity says, no, God became like you at your worst. And died as a petty thief among criminals so that you can receive him into your life. And the Christian gospel necessitates this idea that, and demands that it be true because 
uh, it means that God saves, we don't. And that's what we've been saying this whole, this, well, every day. But I mean, this whole mini-series, right, is kind of the point. Um, but that's, that's good but offensive news right there, which saves some but sends others running uh, the, the other way. Uh, many people have said some version of that before. We've said this before, like, if your gospel is not offensive, it's probably not the gospel. And the, and, and the point to that is not to say we try to offend people with it or that that's the goal. That's not the goal necessarily, but if you really talk about grace, like with the parable of the vineyards thing, if you're really saying, yeah, the eight-hour workers and the one-hour workers, same pay, um, if there's not some, like, sense of burn, you know, with that um, to Christians or non-Christians, something's probably wrong. You're probably not preaching grace. You're probably adding the elements of works into your evangelism or into your, the, the way you think uh, about theology or your, your day-to-day. Because grace is messy. Works-based theology is not. It's clean. But grace is bloody and disgusting because it requires sacrifice. But works is very clean. It's manufactured. There's no sacrifice required. All right, the second point, though, is Jesus says here, I chose my betrayer. That's what this implies. Actually, more than implies. He says it, right? I chose, I, didn't I choose you, the 12? I chose all of you. And one of you is going to be my betrayer. One of you is a devil. So Jesus chose Judas. Isn't that just crazy? Like, knowing full well he would betray him, and that's that parenthetical John gives here. That's later in the story, but... But this in turn means that Jesus is intending to die, right? Jesus is orchestrating his own death. He wants it to happen. He wants it to happen so much that he invites his eventual betrayer into his like, inner circle. That's how much he wants to die. That's how much he intends. It's his main MO, his main mission. So that's why he's saying this here. Right after the disciples make this faith-filled affirmation of belief, and even when half the crowd's running the other way, this is why he says one of you is a devil. He's saying this. He means to say this. You guys, you need to understand that belief in me is not vague or undefined or static. To be the Holy One of God is to die like a sacrificial lamb. To dispense the words of eternal life is to die on a cross like a thief. So you see, in, in one sense, Jesus is ensuring they know what they're trusting in. You say you believe, good, but he's ensuring that to believe in me is to believe in the one who's going to Calvary. And we know there's problems with that. Remember Palm, the whole Palm Sunday kind of like tension, right? We'll talk about that later in the series. But like, well, I thought he was one kind of king when he was this kind of king. Um, so we don't totally get it here. But Jesus is saying, I need to die in the worst way possible. That's how the bread and the blood, or the bread and the wine, the body and the blood come flowing. So he's beginning to reveal these things. Jesus is, at the first, a substitute He's a sacrifice. There is no such thing as Christianity without Jesus' bloody death that atones for our sins. He is, we've already seen, uh, at least in two big ways in John, if not other subtle ways, that he is going to be the lamb led to the slaughter. All for us. And we might then eat of his flesh, and, and then we might drink of his blood and be saved. 
are, your and my sin is that bad. It required that kind of work of God. And so the, so the invitation here, again, and I, I, I mentioned it, you, could, you probably saw it jump off the page even when I was just reading it, but there is a clear fork in the road here. Do you, do you believe? Where else are we going to go? You have the holy, you're the Holy One of God. You have the words of eternal life. Or do we just, you know, raise our hands to the quote-unquote hard teaching and grumble and stand offended and, and walk away? There are, only really, there are only two options. Yeah, but even if you've walked away, there's still time to come back. And so some of you might be on the path of grumbling and offense. It doesn't mean like you're, that's it, you know, like, we can, come, we can come over to the right path. Jesus is saying, but you have to understand what the gospel is, that the flesh is no help at all, and the spirit alone gives life, that I save you, you don't save yourself. There's only one Jesus. So I think the invitation here at the end is, believe in the one who chose his betrayer, that he might be crucified for your sins, and that you might be nourished with the only bread that truly matters, welling up to eternal life. And to twist that diamond a little bit, one last way, Jesus chooses his betrayers, right? But do you see how close that is to the gospel? We're Judas. We're the betrayers. We're the ones who have hard hearts. And with Judas, his story ended one way, and if you're a Christian, it won't end that way, of course. But the gospel is, Jesus chooses the worst of the worst. That's the gospel. Jesus came into the world and he chooses, he chooses the worst of the worst to be close to him. He chooses devils like you and me to be close to him. Ah, now we're getting offensive again, right? This is important. Are we a devil or not? See, if you don't think you are, then well, this is, well, then how do you explain the offense? In the passage, how do you explain people running the other way? It doesn't make any sense if he's flattering. But if he chooses devils, whoa, how can God do that? Well, thank God he does, right? Because none of us would be saved. And the way all this takes shape is through a bloody cross. That's how he can do it. He became like us. He died as one of us. He bled out, offered himself as the path of salvation, not the law, not things to do, not rule-keeping, none of that, himself. And so when Jesus says here, you know, I, I've, chosen one, I've chosen my betrayer, he's saying, I want to die, but also this is the kind of God I am. We're all betrayed. We all betray God when we trust in ourselves with our greed, with our selfishness. And yet Jesus still draws close to us. That's good news, you guys. If you believe in Jesus, then you're saved. That's it. If you believe he's come into the world to die for your sins, that's it. Uh, you, you are saved. You are actually saved. And you have eternal life to look forward to. Uh, so let me pray for us and we'll uh, transition here to communion uh, to respond to this. Jesus, thank you so much for this passage. Um, how it kind of rounds out a, a mini-series of sorts here for us uh, to, to really think about. Uh, you are the bread of life. You are the one who gives the Spirit 
You're the one who says the flesh, our works, are no help at all. Human hands, no help. Um, You're the one who came to save grumblers and betrayers and devils uh, like us. But we need to respond. The, 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 The strong fork in the road cuts like a knife point is that what we do with this Jesus says everything about our eternal destiny. Everything. Do we believe and receive or do we reject because we love the works of our hands and we think we can do it? We, we think we're enough. Do we love our sin? Do we think there's, the grass is greener? Do we want to go back to Egypt to use Old Testament imagery? Um, the desire for other things are like thorns. They choke out the word. And so God, help us to be uh, mindful of that and on guard. Help the leaders of this church, the pastors, to be like watchmen Um, watching out for the sake of uh, protecting the flock. Uh, But all of us, God, have a role in that. Help us to be watchful. But we thank you, Jesus, uh, that you died to save us. You are the essence of the love of God. And we hail you as our king, praise you as our God, and thank you for being our our blood sacrifice and substitute. In Christ we pray.